Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. We are here tonight to talk about the second half of the books from May 1965. Some major books coming up tonight. Certainly major in terms of being monumentous, not necessarily majorly great, but there, we're going to see some good stuff. Okay, so uh, I'm doing Tales of Suspense here, featuring Iron Man and Captain America. On the cover, we see that we're going to get the first Silver Age appearance of the Red Scroll, which Red, is... You just said Red Scroll. <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> Okay. Yes, that's the that's the surprise ending. This isn't the Red Skull. It's a scroll. So uh, we see that this is going to be the Silver Age introduction of the Red Skull. So that is momentous. And then we see that the new Iron Man fights the old Iron Man. And we will see what is up with that. So Iron Man, when Titans clash. I will give you a five minute timer. And Okay. So story by Marvel's merriest marcher, Stan Lee. Art by Marvel's most amiable artist, Don Heck. Inking by Marvel's dizziest delineators, Mickey DeMeo. Lettering by Marvel's persnippiest pen pusher, Sam Rosen. We've got a splash page of the second iteration of Iron Man fighting the current iteration of Iron Man. And I got to say, I love this splash page. This is, yeah. I like DeMeo on Heck. I think that's a good combo. And this is a extremely dynamic and fun splash page of the golden Iron Man whomping the red and gold Iron Man. Yeah, DeMeo seems to do a good job of sort of leaning into Heck as Heck. You know, if you had told me on that first page that that was inked by Heck, I would believe you. And yeah. usually he looks best when he's inking himself. So that makes sense. Tony is giving Pepper and Happy an excuse as to why he's leaving to go and inspect one of his other plants. And this isn't just made up. He actually is going to inspect this other plant. Although the reason he's doing it is to get away from Pepper because, you know, he doesn't trust himself around her basically to to not fall in love with her again. We've got, again, something we've seen many times where Happy's like, uh, you want me to drive you? And he's like, don't volunteer unless you're asked, Hogan. I'll do my own driving on this trip. You stay here. Happy Hogan says to Pepper, what's bucking him? He never spoke to me that way before. And I'm like, he totally has spoken to you in that way before. <laughs> We've had many issues that begin with Tony being a total dick to Happy. And Happy's like, he's never been a dick to me before. It's like, dude, <laughs> you have blinders on in this relationship. He is frequently a dick to you. He's got traumatic brain injury. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's a retired prize fighter. Yeah, Tony is overseeing this missile test. Meanwhile, we've got a thief who has figured out how to get onto, you know, Stark's Queen's campus here, and he's able to get into Tony's office, finds his attache case that Tony foolishly left behind and foolishly did not put the, the locks, the traps, the fail safes on. So this guy is able to open it up, figure out, oh, okay, so this is Iron Man's armor. This means that Tony Stark must be Iron Man. And he puts the whole thing on. Now, one thing that doesn't make any sense, and this is going to bug me through the entire issue, is this guy, what Weasel Wills, has the chest piece of the armor here. Yes, isn't Tony always wearing the chest piece because it's what's keeping him alive? Well, it's not inconceivable that there could be a duplicate chest piece, but uh, yes, that is an excellent th th question. There is visual evidence later that that is not what happens. <laughs> so, anyway. 
I do Wait. like I I like this issue and I like this whole sequence where it's the sort of thing where I'm like, oh, is he going to instantly figure out how to use the armor? It's like, no, they make it very clear that he cannot figure out how to use the armor and he is making right. a complete fool of himself until he sort of then has to walk out of there on his own power without flying because he can't figure it out. And then he goes out to a abandoned shack out in the woods and with much trial and error teaches himself to use the armor. I think it's a nice sequence by heck. Yeah. And I think they specify it's like a week or something like yeah. that. He spends out there just doing nothing but practicing with how to use the armor. So then at this point, he just goes ahead and starts knocking over banks and doing all sorts of other stuff like that. And he's just like, yeah, I'm Iron Man. I'm a bad guy now. What are you going to do? And he knows that, you know, the suspicion will fall on whoever on Tony Stark, if they ever figure out who Iron Man actually had been. Tony Stark even heads down in his other uh, factory and hadn't looked at any of the papers he now does and realizes what's going on so he goes and pulls out his old gold iron man armor and goes ahead and puts it on so tony stark in the old iron man armor and weasel wills in the new iron man armor get into a battle they make it clear that the original iron man armor is tougher but the newer one is lighter and, you know, you can be more speedy in it. They're playing those two things off against each other. And Weasel Wills is trying to use brute force. And that's not working as much because the other one can take brute force better. Tony Stark figures out that this guy probably, even though he's been using this thing for a week, hasn't really figured out the limits of how long power lasts during a battle. And so he just is able to, with his tougher armor, just kind of wait him out until he's about to run out of power, a Weasel Wills is in the new armor, and has to plug himself back in. But at that point, Tony Stark is able to come in here and get him. He unmasks Weasel Wills, but Weasel Wills is not able to give away Tony Stark's identity, or he's able to, but he doesn't do it because he, at this point, has convinced himself that he is indeed himself Iron Man, and he has sort of lost his mind. I, yeah, I like how, how Tony is just willing to take the hit here. It's like, well, I've captured this guy. I'm not going to kill him, and I'm not going to, like, oops, accidentally kill him, which is what usually happens when a superhero right. fights someone who knows their secret identity. He's like, no, I'm just going to arrest the guy and turn him in, and I guess he'll tell everybody I'm Iron Man, and I guess I've lost my secret identity now. And then he just lucks out that the guy is going crazy and insists that he really is Iron Man. But... I like how Tony's willing to just take the hit here instead of accidentally killing him, which is what heroes would normally do in this situation. Yeah. So also on page 12, I noticed that in, um, God, how many panels are on this page? The last panel on the second tier of panels where they've unmasked Weasel Wills, he's still wearing the full modern Iron Man armor minus the mask. And in the very next panel, they are dragging him away and he's wearing a dark dress shirt with an orange tie. It's like, wait, what what happened in the middle here? What's going on? One thing is they seem to have just completely forgotten the idea that Tony Stark has told Pepper and Happy that he's engaged. Yes. It's no longer a thing. It just doesn't matter. And then when Stark is looking for the old armor to put on, one thing I was thinking is we already established that he's got some other experimental versions of armor around from that time when he wasn't able to get his repulsor rays or something like that and had yeah. to go get some gauntlets from another set of armor. Again, it's a fun story, but yeah, there are some there's pulls. I like this Iron Man story. I think that Heck and Tomeo are a good combo, and I think it's a really fun idea for a story where a 
Crook steals the armor and he's got to fight him with the old armor. I think that's a Cracker Jack idea for a story <laughs> and really works well. Yeah, I, I just wish they'd put a little bit more thought into the whole thing about the chest device issue. But, you know, it's, it's being nitpicky. Meanwhile, we're going to move on to Captain America in The Red Scroll Strikes. So uh, we've just you got said scroll of- again. It's it's like saying the Aristocats uh, by accident. Yes, I did. I'm I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so Captain America in the Red Skull Strikes. He is a skull, not a scroll. Uh, let it yes. be known. Anyway, we see once again it's World War II. It's still before the war well, has officially so, started. Wait, before we get the story, once again, Stanley has realized. Oh, we published all these great Captain America comics in the 1940s. You would think he would be going like. I can read through the entire series again and pick the best ones and adapt them for modern day. Instead, he is just going through and doing every single story. So this is the third issue we've been doing this, and we still haven't left Captain America Comics number one. Is that this, for real? I hadn't looked that up. This story is an adaptation, a very close adaptation of one of the stories in Captain America Comics number one that introduced the Red Skull. And he is still not giving any credit to Joe Simon, as he should be, but he is admitting that he barely rewrote the story because it says, we tried an experiment in this tale. Since it features a menace from the past, we wrote it in the style of the 1940s because so many of you have wondered how these stories were written years ago. Well, now you're going to find out. So this is just basically Stanley admitting, like, yes, I have barely rewritten this story. This is going to be almost verbatim the original Joe Simon story from 1940. And here it is. <laughs> and I'm just dumping it on you. You know, the original text's only slightly altered, except for I gave myself writing credit instead of the original writer. Joe Simon. Not, so, not, well, I, I, was, I don't know how the whole Simon and Kirby thing worked. They were both artists, right? I mean, were they both artists? Were they both writers? Were they one and the other? Did they pencil and ink each other? I, I really do not know how that partnership worked. I don't either do know. Yeah. No. Okay. Uh, so I had a somewhat more credulous reading of that uh, thing about the style of the 40s in that it was like, oh, I'm not going to use the Marvel method this time. I'm going to write out a full script and send oh, it God, over no. to. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, like I said, I was, I was a little more credulous. So yes. um, we're still before United States has entered World War II. Captain America and Bucky still have their um, non-superhero identities in Camp Lehigh. They are apparently chauffeuring around Major Croy and takes him back to his home. Apparently, he just has an apartment in New York City that he goes and stays at from time to time. The guy sends Captain America, well, not Captain America and Bucky, but Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes away, saying, no, I don't need your help. Meanwhile, the Major, was it Major? Major? Yes. The Major uh, is, you know, just putting tobacco in his pipe, and he's just going to relax in his study, and then the Red Skull comes in through the window and knocks Major McCrory unconscious. Um, I gotta say, I always... Sorry, did I say McCrory? That was the name of a North Carolina governor. Major... (laughs) Just, yeah, okay. Uh, go on. When Kirby doesn't feel like putting any effort into a costume, he just gives the person a shapeless green jumpsuit. I love the Red Skull's head, and I've always been so disappointed in the lumpy green jumpsuit he often wears on his body. Uh, at least it has the decency to have a white swastika on it, but <laughs> I, I always prefer it when they actually get the, like the Red Skull dressed up in like full Nazi regalia or something, you know, like yeah. wearing the jodhpurs or something like that. 
I've never been a fan of the green jumpsuit. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you that. The Red Skull gives some kind of like forgetting gas to this guy. Whitey's doesn't just like pop him in the head, uh, being a Nazi and all. I don't entirely know. But yeah. <laughs> instead gives him some memory loss gas. He wakes back up and he's like, I, I, I don't know. I can't tell you what happened. Uh, Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes are there. They go and change into their superhero identities in the next room, seemingly not really caring too much if they get seen from what we're seeing there. They then exit through the window and go track down the Red Skull, who apparently is working in cahoots with straight up American gangsters. So it's American gangsters are getting the money for the Nazi spy ring and then the Nazis are doing the sabotage. Captain America and Bucky find them. They come in and go to town on these guys, including the Red Skull, the Nazis, and the uh, gangsters. At one point, uh, Captain America throws his shield and it hits a bunch of them like a cue ball hitting a you know rack of, uh, of pool balls. And it says, Boing! <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That just, uh, you know... Um, yeah, uh, amuses me. So the Red Skull slips out a side door and it turns out it's solid plate steel. So they can't make it through this and get to him. But they recover all the money and tie up the Nazis and basically have sewn up this spy and sabotage network. So the next day, the soldiers are being told that this industrialist who is helping build the arsenal of democracy for us is here to test one of his new planes treat him with respect, give him whatever he needs so that he can run this test. Well, of course, the plane that's being tested bursts out in flames. And I think they make it clear here, don't they, that actually a couple of pilots are killed in this accident. Everyone just seems shocked. But Steve Rogers notices that Mr. Maxson, the guy who built the plane, says, my reputation is at stake. This immediately jumps out at Steve Rogers as, hmm, that doesn't seem like the reaction of somebody who just had two people die because of his mistake. He and Bucky turn back into Captain America and, of course, Bucky, because secret identities and everything. Bucky is secret identity, Bucky. Yeah, exactly. They go into the general's house and the Red Skull is in there giving some sleep gas to his housekeeper. What yes. is that? I don't quite why are they going into the general's place anyway one way or the other they have a nice fight with the red skull and defeat him they take off the mask of the red skull and it's actually maxon the aircraft tycoon he says yankee fool i've deceived you as i have deceived all the high officials until this day when general curtis began to investigate and discovered that i am not the real john maxon he escapes Theoretically, that was another mask underneath a mask. Uh, I don't think that that's actually the Red Skull's actual face, if I'm not mistaken. But he's able to burst out and get away. Captain America and Bucky find that he had a little notepad with his to-do list of who to eliminate. And it said Major Croy crossed out, General Curtis crossed out. And then Captain America and Bucky were the next two on the list. Yes. Anyway, yeah, that's it. It's it's pretty simple. And, you know, as you said, it's uh, as I did not realize. I mean, I guess I actually do have the letters page in this one. So I probably should have read more about this one way or the other. It's a fun story, although, you know, as you said, it's just pretty much recycled from another writer's work. You know, it's interesting. As you were reading it, I'm like, well, I feel like this is 
very, very much almost panel by panel was original. I'm like, but in the original, of course, he had a triangular shield and he was right. not throwing his shield at people. So yes, I looked back and those panels are different, but it is only slightly different. It is getting more and more ridiculous to not give Joe some credit. And also it is getting more and more ridiculous to the degree to which they are dedicated to adapting every single story from Captain America Comics number one. At this point, they presumably figured they could get at least 30 years of Tales of Suspense stories out of <laughs> the five years of Captain America comics they originally published. Eventually, they will give up on this. But I think it is great to have the Red Skull. I think the Red Skull oh, yeah. is Captain America's ultimate villain. He is you know, a tremendously iconic villain. And to have that icon restored to the Marvel Universe is just wonderful. Yes. That was Tales of Suspense, a, I thought, shockingly good Iron Man story and an excellent, if extremely derivative, Captain America story. Let's go ahead and go on to Tales to Astonish number 67. So we've got the cover in this case evenly divided between uh, the Hulk where strikes a behemoth and giant man, the hated man and his rays of doom. This picture of the Hulk on the cover, I have seen swiped directly or homaged quite directly. And I couldn't remember exactly where. There is a very similar drawing on the cover of The Essential Hulk, Volume 1, by Bruce Timm, of all people. Uh, mm. Not an artist associated with Marvel Comics. But, well, um, no, but I mean, this looks, I mean, I see this and I'm like, yeah, Bruce Timm could you know, not have to do much with this and have this look like a, look like this image and be Bruce Timm. Yeah, you should Google The Essential Hulk, Volume 1, to see Bruce Timm's version of this. But I feel like there was an even more direct swipe or homage uh, that was later. Let's go ahead and do the comic. Go inside to see Giant Man and the Wonderful Wasp, the mystery of the hidden man and his rays of doom. Way out story by Stan Lee, ringeting art by Bob Powell, swinging inking by Chick Stone, boss balloons by Artie Simek. Earth shaking editor's note this may not be the greatest story you've ever read, but we guarantee it's one of the kookiest, and who'd know better than us? So, once again, Stanley tempering expectations here, letting us know this is not a very good story. Indeed, this was another case where I had read this comic last week and then took my notes this week and could not remember for the life of me what the story was. Although this one, I should have remembered because it's, yeah. it's in some ways it's almost as as deliriously bananas as like the early early Ant Man stories. <laughs> So Giant Man is chasing a station wagon on the cover, and then we jump back to some time before to see what's going on, and we see Giant Man just happens to see some power lines that are out and goes to go adjust them when suddenly he's hit by a green ray being shot by a station wagon. Then we see in a hidden laboratory some distance away, there is a creepy looking alien dude. I kind of like his outfit. It is strange looking. It gives the impression that his head is enormous, although we don't yes. know if that's just the helmet or not. He has hired some human to drive around in the station wagon and shoot green rays at people and steal their abilities. And then you get something truly bizarre on the bottom of page two and the top of page three, where if you look at the art, the station wagon is there, it's pointing the green ray at Giant Man, and then Giant Man chases the car. But in the text, for some bizarre reason, it says, now I'm going to go home. I've blown a fuse. I'm going to go home and come back two hours later. And he comes back two hours later and Giant Man just happens to still be standing there. And then they continue their confrontation. But if you just take those text balloons out, the art makes perfect sense in terms of, you know, he attacks Giant Man and then Giant Man chases him. Why do you need to add this bizarre two-hour gap that makes no sense? Truly strange. Yeah. Um, Giant Man chases the station wagon. Human gets away, then goes back to the alien. And the alien is like, 
So I sent you around town to steal people's powers. Why didn't you steal his powers? We then cut to Giant Man and the Wasp. Giant Man's like, hey, Wasp, I've got a great idea for you. You know, I'm Ant-Man and I ride around on ants and you're the Wasp, so you should ride around on bees. <laughs> and, and she says, but why a bee? Why not a wasp, for goodness sakes? And he says, because bees are gentler, smarter, and easier to train than wasps. He puts her on a bee. Now, what's the first thing you think is going to happen when someone is riding a bee? That they're going to sting you? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> you would think. Wouldn't you get stung by a bee? And indeed, that happens a couple of pages later. So we've got the aliens stealing other scientists' powers, sending the person out with the station wagon with the green ray. Now, now we can't go by the fact that on page five, they are going to try to get somebody who has all knowledge of bees, I guess, because he knows what's going on here. And so then they go to find Fenton Farnham, world's greatest authority on bees. And the whole Ghostbusters looking station wagon pulls up and says, I found him now activating the green ray. But Dr. Fenton Farnham looks like he is holding a test tube with bees in it, <laughs> looking at the bees and writing down notes. This is the world's greatest authority on bees, and he's putting them in test tubes <laughs> and scribbling down notes about it. That's science. That's how science works. You put everything in a test tube. It must be in a test tube. <laughs> That, so then, that's that's my favorite part about this whole story. That's the one thing that makes this story worth existing. Uh, Hank is on the case. He is investigating. Jan, meanwhile, gets, whoops, stung by her bee that she is riding on. And the Green Ray has stolen the bee's knowledge. So the bee forgot that it had been trained to treat Jan as its mistress. So that it had its beeness stolen from it. And then it stung Jan. Hank has to shrink down and remove the stinger from Jan in order to save her life. And then Hank finds that the Green Ray has stolen his ability to shrink, but not to grow. So he has to just keep growing as he chases after the alien. He finally catches up to the alien, smashes the station wagon with the human in it, and then is chasing after the alien on several pages. Some various things happen. <laughs> the alien is eventually sucked back to his home planet by the other aliens who say, you know the penalty for trying to conquer primitive planets, Supremor. Your crime is unforgivable. So I guess we now know his name is Supramor, S-U-P-R-A-M-O-R. So that alien menace is dealt with. Hank's powers return to him. He can shrink again. And he has to sort of wear his arm in a sling now. I love the final panel where Hank watches sort of the green glow move away, presumably the alien spaceship taking off. He then thinks to himself, for one brief fleeting moment in eternity, two living beings met, fought, then parted. Now it's over. And no one will ever know. And I'm like going, that word balloon could happen at the end of every single comic ever published. <laughs> Show me no. a comic book that could not end with the word balloon for one brief fleeting moment in eternity. Two living beings met, fought, then parted. Now it's over and no one will ever know. Anyone, any given one. Yes. Before we move on here, when Giant Man uses the tweezers to rescue Jan, they're the tweezers which I use for my stamp collection. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, can't you just have a tweezers? Like, what? So he is one of the foremost scientists on insects, one of the foremost bioscience, you know, whatever you would call it, folks. Later, he's going to invent Ultron. So he's obviously a mechanical and, and computer inventor as well. He knows judo. And also, he needs to fill up his free time with something. 
So he collects stamps. He also knows philately. (laughs) Indeed. Be careful how you say that. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Shall we move on to bigger and better things in this issue then? Indeed we shall. Let's go back to the back half of the book, The Incredible Hulk, Where Strides the Behemoth. So they actually make a big point here of pointing out at the end, both in the letters page and on the final panel, that this is Steve Ditko's last issue of the book. That, unfortunately, Steve Ditko was in the middle of a great leader storyline, and then seemingly Stanley yanked him out of it and had him get the Hulks trapped behind the Iron Curtain for several issues. And we never got to finish up the leader storyline, or Steve Ditko never got to finish up. It's going to be finished up without him now. So this issue is script by Stanley, who created the Hulk, art by Steve Ditko, who adopted the Hulk, inking by Frank Ray, who fears the Hulk, lettering by Art Simek, who looks like the Hulk. Ray inking Ditko is okay. I like Ray as an inker. He does an interesting job with Ditko. I think it's fine. We have five pages of the Hulk fighting Soviet tanks, and it is awesome. They beat on each other in all sorts of curious and fun ways. The Hulk then decides to jump away from the fight and jumps to Mongolia. So it was very unclear where we were. Like, if he had been in central Russia, you know, and then jumping to Mongolia wouldn't be too crazy. Because Mongolia does border Russia. But they had said before he was in a communist-controlled country, implying he was in Eastern Europe. So jumping all the way to Mongolia is one hell of a jump. That is uh, (laughs) one hell of a series of jumps. When we were kids reading the Hulk, he was doing the whole country jumping thing. And actually, it's one of the things I really like about this issue. Hulk is talking the way that he will talk when we start reading him in the 80s. Uh, He's jumping from country to country, as he will in the future. He does his whole thunderclap with his hands to create a shockwave that destroys the tanks. There's all sorts of stuff Ditko is really doing here that is setting up things that will remain part of the Hulk mythos forever. And that is one of my all-time favorite storylines, is the Bill Mitlow country hunting oh, yeah. storyline. So yeah, it was nice to have that set up here. Now, like Mongolia at this point was, I thought of, a pretty solidly under control of communist country, but yes. they have warlords, the warlords of Mongolia. So he ends up in the hands of a Mongolian warlord named Kenga Khan. Uh, he's like, dude, trust me, you're going to want to ransom me back to the West because I'm going to be worth a lot there. And they're like, you? Like some random dude in torn up purple pants? They're like, okay, we'll go ahead and contact the West about to get the ransom for you. Then about us, it's gotten word that Bruce Banner is being held in Mongolia. Grant Talbot says, send me, I will come back and get him. And then we see a nice panel of Grant Talbot, presumably in Ulaanbaatar, asking for information about where to find Bruce Banner. He goes to barter for Bruce Banner's life, but luckily, I guess for Gwen Talbot, another Mongolian warlord attacks Kanka Khan while Gwen Talbot is there. And Gwen Talbot's like, this is our chance. Let's just escape without paying any money. And Gwen Talbot and Bruce Banner flee. I like how then Gwen Talbot turns out to be kind of badass at punching his way through the Mongolian people. I used to read these comics to my son, and he would go like, you can't end there. You can't end on a cliffhanger. And then we got a big laugh out of this, me and my son, because we're like, this is the ultimate cliffhanger. One of the <laughs> number one cliffhangers in the history of formal comics, because they are actually on the edge of a cliff, which breaks off and falls. They are plunging off the edge of a cliff. And then Steve Dicko leaves the book. So as far as Steve Dicko <laughs> is concerned, that's the last we ever see of Glenn Talbot and Bruce Banner as they plunge off the edge of a cliff. However, it says here... We wish to thank Steve Ditko for helping the Hulk to reach new heights of glory with his masterful artwork in these past issues. And beginning next month, Jack Kirby returns to bring you the most breathtaking installment yet of the world's first illo-drama cliffhanger. 
the further adventures of the Incredible Hulk. So that's pretty sweet. The only two people who have ever drawn Hulk are Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Jack Kirby drew the first five issues of Hulk's book. Ditko drew the sixth issue, and then Ditko drew the book when it returned in Tales to Astonish, and now Kirby is back. So you get the feeling that Stan Lee really loves the Hulk and wants to give it his best. And if he can't give it Kirby, he'll give it Ditko. And if he can't give it Ditko, he'll go back to Kirby. I think that Ditko has had a nice run on this book. I think this is a nice finale to it. It would have been so much better to have the leader involved. But if we can't have the leader, this is a perfectly fine issue. It is fun to read. And it says in the back, this doesn't mean Steve will be doing any less work for Marvel. On the contrary, he plans to concentrate on the new Spider-Man annual and more Doctor Strange thrillers until we get a backlog of them. And then who knows, we might just have a new feature in the offing for one of Comicdom's most popular illustrators. But I don't believe they do. I think at this point, he never draws anything else except for Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Yes, he just draws that one Spider-Man annual, which will happen to guest star Doctor Strange. Yes, and he presumably is starting to, to have more discontent set in about the way things are going at Marvel. Yeah. We don't really see much evidence of that yet, but as I said, I, I've sort of gotten the impression that Wally Wood kind of got in his ear around this period of time to sort of point out to him that he was given short shrift both in terms of money and credit. That Once again, that's just speculation on my part, but let's move on to X-Men number 11. So this is introducing the stranger and on the cover we see this guy who looks like he's either giant or he's just floating in a weird perspective there above the street and he's got bushy eyebrows and a big mustache uh, all white yep the uh x-men are looking upon in so i i gotta say i love the look of the stranger i love the look of his head which will continue on through all the years of the stranger I think the stranger just has a fantastic look in this issue and that he's wearing normal human clothes and is just this really weird dude who can walk through the air and walk through walls and wield enormous power, but is sort of this mild-mannered dressed guy with this really crazy white hair. In the future, we'll see the stranger in his natural clothing of his alien planet, and I become a much less big fan of him. I don't like his green and red outfit that he wears. But in this issue where he's dressed as a mild-mannered dude, I love the look of the stranger. Yeah, I'll go ahead and start a timer for you here. Please do. So, Extraordinary Script by Stan Lee, Extravagant Art by Jack Kirby, Exceptional Inking by Chick Stone, Exemplary Lettering by Artie Simak. Professor X is trying to get an image of something that has been pulled up on some radar using some new technology he's got. Uh, Presumably this is just Cerebro, but Cerebro's got imaging technology, which it's never had before. Whatever this being is, it has the power to resist this tool and uh, shut it off. They're not sure if this is a mutant or not, but they need to go out and find the thing and bring it in. So I gotta say, you might notice right away on page one, there's something odd about this issue and that the rest of the X-Men are all in costume, but Scott is in his civilian clothes. And it's like, now that the X-Men are here, he's going to change into his X-Men costume, right? No, even when they then go out in the field, he's dressed in his civilian clothes while the rest of the X-Men are in their X-Men outfits. It changes at some point. Yeah, I don't know. We then are introduced to the stranger. He is leasing a small boarding room, basically. The woman who's renting him the place says, Look, Carly, I'm glad you're satisfied, but I'll expect the full week scratch in advance. He's like, scratch? How square can you be? You know, cabbage, Jack, moolah, dough, the rent. Oh, you mean money. 
Uh, so then he yes. reaches into his jacket pocket and pulls out a massive wad of cash. He hands it to the woman who actually looks very much like Granny Goodness from yes. <laughs> Jack Kirby's later work. The stranger then is going out into New York. Pedestrian traffic just sees that, you know, waiting to cross the street with all the busy vehicle traffic is too much. So he just walks through the air to get where he wants to go, not realizing that this is going to draw attention to himself. So then he walks through a wall and happens to walk into a building that is owned by Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Oh, I don't think he's just happening to do it. I think that he is. Why is something attracting me to this particular building, this particular role? He is being drawn there by mutant powers. I mean, we will later find out he is on Earth to study mutation. So he is seeking out mutants. And so he has found Magneto because that's what he is searching for. Right. So I feel I'm being irresistibly drawn towards what? And then here others expecting me. Okay. Yes, you are correct. I had uh, forgotten that detail. The X-Men are trying to find this guy. They're overhearing some cops talk about something. They're like, oh, I think they're talking about him. Scott comes up to them and says, hey, can you describe this person? And then they're like, hey, you look like a shady character. Why are you wearing sunglasses on a cloudy day? And hey, take them off so we can look at your face, mister. And he's like, no, don't. And they take off his glasses. And they say that apparently he can't even block his eye beams by closing his eyes that something leaks through. Uh, And this has always been one thing that's confused me, is that sometimes they make it seem like him using his eye beams is draining to him, and sometimes they have it be like, no, it's just always on and there's nothing he can do about it. We're we're getting the second one of those this time. So they figure out he has to be Cyclops. (laughs) Beast rescues him from this pickle, but he does it as though he's picking Scott up like like an OBGYN delivering a baby with forceps. (laughs) The Beast just has his feet around the sides of Scott's head like he's picking him up by his chin using Beast's uh, feet. It looks very painful and not a good idea. Beast then takes him over to the rest of the X-Men. They're really jacking up the soap opera stuff between Gene and Scott. Scott says, good girl, Gene. I was wondering what would slow us down when we hit the bottom. She says, somehow, when he says, good girl, it's better than Richard Chamberlain saying, my darling. Yes. Uh, don't lay it on quite so thick. <laughs> Richard Chamberlain, like Bobby Drake, eventually turns out to be gay. But at this point, we don't know that. The stranger is saying, you know, why did you bring me here? What do you want? Magneto starts using his magnetic powers to throw stuff at him and bind him up, him being the stranger in this case, to show how much power he has so that he will say, oh, I must serve this great and powerful being. The Toad is, of course, just jumping up and down maniacally, loving this whole thing. Mastermind then creates an illusion for the stranger that he's under the water, and then he's in a magma cavern or something like that. The stranger is just like, okay, this is stupid. Why am I not doing something about this? And then uses his immense power to shatter the illusions and to throw all the magnetic stuff back at Magneto. He turns uh, Mastermind into, quote, a solid block of matter, as though human bodies aren't already matter. (laughs) It's basically some kind of heavy mineral sort of thing. But yes, a solid block of matter. So he becomes so heavy that he falls immediately through the floor and then goes through the floor of the shop below down into the basement. This draws the attention. The X-Men, they come by and they find the Stranger and the uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants minus Mastermind. When Iceman freezes 
Quicksilver in an encasement of ice, uh, Scarlet Witch jumps in and uses her hex power to make everything go all askew and higgledy-piggledy and whatnot. Yeah, so the stranger is then just basically like, look, this is, I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to depart in my own manner. Uh, and there's this weird swirling thing around him, and then uh, he says to Magneto, you may join me if you wish. Step into my cone of energy. In the end, both uh, Magneto and the Toad jump into the cone of energy, and they both disappear. Oh, and on page 12, that picture of Scott in the second-to-last panel, something went horribly wrong when drawing Scott in his sunglasses in that one. <laughs> Entirely short. I'm not sure anything went wrong. I think that may have just been the way Kirby chose to draw it. Well, well yes, I, <laughs> that may have been what went wrong. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Okay. But then uh, Scarlet Witch causes the ceiling to fall directly onto Hank, but then Hank is able to sort of juggle the ceiling parts with his feet. Uh, why he can't just kick them aside, I'm not entirely sure, but Scott has to shatter the stuff using his eye beams. They then unencase Quicksilver from the ice. They're saying the new mutant, Professor X, said he was the most powerful at all. If Magneto has enlisted him on his side, then our mission here is a total failure. Unless we can even the odds by having the two of you join the X-Men, he says to Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Well, you um, skipped over before. The Scarlet Witch says, you need do nothing with us ever again. We have served Magneto for the last time. And Quicksilver says, Wanda is right. We owed him a debt, but it has been repaid many times over. We shall serve him no longer. Yes. They had one last appearance by Hawkeye and Iron Man before he showed up in the Avengers. And you would think like, oh, this is going to be the appearance where he realizes it's wrong to be a bad guy and he gets on the path of good and then ends up in the Avengers. Well, no, that did not happen. We do have here in Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch's last pre-Avengers appearance, them decide to follow the track of good and specifically turn down a place in the X-Men. They say... We shall return to our home in Century Europe and forget the endless battle of mutant against mutant, but someday we may return. Someday the fate of mankind may hinge upon our entering the battle once more. So they very much have them retired here. Well, of course, when we get to the very next issue, they are going to unretire quite spectacularly, <laughs> moving the characters around the board quite a bit. Then we yeah. go back to the stranger and Magneto and Toad. Just a little aside visually here I'm going to point out is that I had not realized that the Scarlet Witch's weird headpiece had been established as like some kind of wrap around her head by Kirby in this. I always thought that was a misinterpretation of her headgear by Don Heck when he is drawing the Avengers. But nope, apparently not. It is just some sort of weird wraparound thing that she's wearing yeah. uh, rather than a tiara, which it basically eventually becomes. So then we see that the stranger has brought Magneto and Toad out to some wooded area and then the stranger starts growing large and he says i told you i was a stranger you know i'm far different than anything you've ever known he then covers magneto and toad in some kind of anti-magnetic membrane magneto is like oh i am not in a good place here this is going yeah. sideways quickly back with the x-men they are uh checking on mastermind and seeing where he is apparently he is still alive then they go off to find the stranger. Now, unfortunately, I thought that this flying bathtub of a helicopter had been destroyed in a previous issue, uh, and I was very happy to see it go. But unfortunately, they apparently had another one. So yes. uh, we have not gotten rid of this monstrosity yet. They find Magneto and Toad all wrapped up. The stranger then comes and says, uh, those cocoons will protect them for the journey they're about to take. I can guess the journey referred to. Its destination is no place on Earth, is it? Says Professor X. Of course not. Have I not said I am 
a stranger, a stranger from the stars. My people are greatly interested in mutations. I journey from planet to planet, taking specimens of mutants back to my world for study. I did not know whom to take from Earth, but then the one who calls himself Magneto insists that I ally myself with him. And so I choose to take him and the other whose loyalty is so touching. We shall never return. (laughs) They head off into space. And the X-Men believe them because the X-Men then go home and remove Magneto and Toad's names from Cerebro. They're like, we believe we are going to again. And they remove Mastermind's name from Cerebro. So apparently they're like, well, he's still alive inside this stone thing, but we're just going to leave him there and we'll never have to worry about him again. Cyclops is actually saying, will this mean disbanding the X-Men, sir? Because, you know, it's like, well, if Magneto is no longer here, then what are we doing? (laughs) Wasn't that that the whole danger we were trying to protect humanity from? Well, you would think you would have disbanded the X-Men when you all graduated from the school that you were attending, but no, that didn't happen and you're not breaking up now either. Yeah, and after they remove the uh, names from Cerebro, they start getting a frantic beeping coming from Cerebro that they do not explain, but is obviously very distressing to them. I didn't look forward, but isn't this going to be Juggernaut that's showing oh, up? Oh, is it? Yeah, I or I didn't look forward to see who it is. I did look forward to see who this artist is they're so excited about. I don't know if you read the letters page on this issue, No, but in the letters page, they go, okay, it's coming attractions time now, and we're really got some exciting news for our next dish. We're planning to have a new artist illustrate X-Men number 12. He's one of Comicdom's truly greats in a class with wonderful Wally Wood, whose fabulous work on Daredevil is the talk of the town. We won't tell you his name now because we want you to be surprised, but when you see him, we guarantee you'll flip. So I was like, who is it? Who is it? And I went ahead and I checked ahead next issue to see who it is. It's Alex Toth. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Yes. And and it's not very good. Like, it's it does not, not work well. Yeah. I believe it is Kirby Layouts, Toth Finishes, Coletta Inks, I think. It's just as good as it sounds. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then that's it. And then that's all we see of Toth, I think, in Silver Age Marvel. Unfortunately, this is our last full Kirby issue on... The X-Men, he will do just layouts for the next six or seven issues, and then he will be gone entirely. So this is our last Bull Kirby issue. Very cruel tease, teasing a, uh artist for next issue, which does not turn out to be very good, although Alex Toth can be a great artist and has done great work in his career. But I like this issue a lot. Just as we had the last issue of Adventures felt like a big wrap-up for the storylines that had sustained the first 15 issues of the book, this feels like a big wrap-up for the first 11 issues of the X-Men, where we sort of have the thread of Magneto and and the Toad seemingly totally removed, and we've got Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch turned to the good once and for all, and we've got Mastermind turned into a hunk of rock. So that's, <laughs> that's it for the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and I like the Stranger a lot. I think he is excellent in this issue. I will like him more and less over the years as he is put to various uses, but I think he is excellent in this first appearance. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, I saw this like, oh, the stranger, that's one of those really super lame characters, isn't it? And then I read through it. I'm like, no, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, And I find it a little bit surprising that Jack Kirby was working on X-Men this far after he had left Avengers. You know, it's yeah. just you, you think of Silver Age X-Men as being pretty much the last book that anyone was really paying attention to or giving their heart and soul to here. But Kirby stayed on this longer than he did on the on the Avengers. I see there's a letter from Pat Smith of Greensboro, North Carolina. Oh, really? No, we didn't have the uh, the letters column in Marvel Unlimited on this one. All right. 
So let's go ahead and go on to a huge issue that will round out this month. The Avengers, number 16, spectacular special issue, the start of a great new Avengers lineup. And we have Captain America saying Avengers Assemble in front of a wall that has pictures of all of the many people in this issue, letting us know that this is going to be a big unholy mess. <laughs> this issue is just a huge mess of an issue. It is one of the most important issues in Marvel history, and it could not be more awkwardly plotted and messy. So this issue, I should say, we have a completely heckless issue here. This is Dazzling <laughs> Script by Stan Lee, Dashing Layouts by Jack Kirby, Dazzling Artwork by Dick Ayers, Delicate Lettering by Artie Simak. So delightful to have Heck completely gone for an issue and have it just be Kirby Ayers. But poor storytelling from Kirby here, where we begin with the Avengers on the street talking to someone, and Thor is thinking the Executioner is right, so clearly he's talking to the Executioner, but we don't see who they're talking to. And then we get two more panels of just the Avengers talking without seeing who they're talking to. And then we cut to the Masters of Evil, but the Masters of Evil are facing the same direction as the Avengers. And we cut back to the Avengers. We never get a master shot that shows where the Avengers are in relation to the Masters of Evil. This is just very poor storytelling. It's very hard to tell what's going on, especially because they're all facing the same direction. And this is just very awkward to have the fight against some members of Masters of Evil continue on from last issue. Why couldn't that have all been wrapped up last issue? There's plenty of story to cover in this issue, but they didn't. Thor then whips up a big tornado to take everybody to another dimension so that they could have this fight in a little more privacy. But Executioner and Enchantress see what he's doing and jump out of the way and they escape. And by the way, Giant Man says, Plan D, our last resort. But can you do it fast enough? So, you know, I just, he brings the D. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. So then, <laughs> cut to this strange alien dimension where just Black Knight and Melter went there, who the Avengers very quickly deal with and wrap up. They then go back to Earth, but then we cut back to South America. Now, you would think that you would just have Captain America show back in New York after having defeated Zemo in South America, but... Oh boy, no, that doesn't happen. Instead, it takes him this entire issue to get back to New York while he misses a lot. And you would think the other vendors would go like, well, let's rescue Captain America before we deal with all of this other huge stuff. But they do not. They just leave him on his own. He buries Zemo, and then he's got to hop on a plane to go back. But then Zemo goons attack, and they accidentally blow up the plane. And so Captain America and Rick are like, how are we going to get home? Well, we'll find out later. We then cut to Iron Man, Wasp, and Giant Man at a meeting. They're like, where's Thor? And Wasp says, he can't be here today. He muttered something about a trial of the gods and ran off. The other three decide, well, in that case, let's disband. Thor isn't here. He hasn't resigned. Captain America isn't here. We don't even know if he's alive or dead. But now that it's just down to the three of us, let's just disband and there's no good reason for it there's nothing that happens in this issue that convinces them that their time has passed they just all are sort of pooped and they decide to do that well it just so happens while they're having this discussion suddenly smoke fills the place coming from a smoke arrow and they go and see that hawkeye has shown up and has tied up jarvis now is this the first time we've actually seen jarvis in the avengers comic instead of just in captain america yes i think it might very well be Hawkeye shows up, he flashes all the way back to Iron Man 57, or Tales of Suspense 57, and says, I never intend to be a bad guy. I tried to save somebody, and the cops mistook me for a bad guy, 
And then I guess I ended up in the thrall of a Soviet spy and I, okay, I may have done some light treason. But... <laughs> Thank you, uh, Mr. Bluth. Yes. He then tells us a bit of the story that we didn't see in Iron Man, that Natasha was shot and seemingly almost killed, but they take her to the hospital and he doesn't even, he can't bear to know if she lived or died. And so then he decided, I'm going to go back to be a good guy. And just to show it, I've tied up your butler, Jarvis, <laughs> and then I will untie him by shooting three arrows that untie his bonds. And Giant Man says, I'm sold. How about you, Wasp? <laughs> and Wasp says, Vava Voom. Oh, eh, I mean, he ought to do fine. They decide, yes, we will let you join the Avengers and we will all quit. As far as we know, Captain America is dead. As far as we know, Thor is dead. So we are going to all quit the Avengers and have Hawkeye be, as far as they know, the only Avenger. <laughs> and I'll give you an Avengers manual so you can study our bylaws. They then send a little robot down to some mariner to invite him to join the Avengers. He says, no, of course. We then cut to a Swiss chalet where Pietro and Wanda, who we just saw mere moments ago when they told the X-Men they were done fighting forever. Well, now they see an ad in the newspaper basically saying the Avengers are desperate for anybody to join the Avengers. And they go, let's do it. This could be our chance, my sister. And she says, but weren't we just invited to join the X-Men and said no? And he says, because I wish to forget that we are homo superior, born with powers denied to ordinary human beings. But the Avengers might accept us without caring that we are different, without always reminding us that we are mutants. I shall do as you wish, my brother. And it is very strange that at this point, there have been an additional 58 years of comics since this came out. And as far as I know, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver have never joined the X-Men. That there yeah. has never once been an X-Men roster that had Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in it. They've always been associated with the Avengers from this point on, which is very strange, even though yeah, other is. people like the Beast have come and gone between the two teams. But it is just decided at this point, even though they're mutants and even though the world supposedly doesn't accept mutants, they are Avengers and they will be associated with the book and have an epic association with the book. Quicksilver writes a letter to the Avengers. We then, this is just a bizarrely structured issue. It has two press conferences in it. It seems like this could have been rewritten in a way to simplify the story so that it only takes one press conference for this whole thing to happen, but it doesn't. The Avengers have a big press conference to introduce Hawkeye to everybody, and then they all decide to leave. We then cut to Captain America and Rick Jones are still trying to escape from South America. I saw you posted to Comic Swipes a picture of Captain America <laughs> swinging on a vine over a bunch of alligators and how it looks like the cover to the old Pitfall video game. Yes. They finally find a person who can help them. <laughs> yeah. Well, specifically, Captain America says, hold it. I hear something in that clearing. A white man being attacked by a leopard. <laughs> and it's like, well, why is it important that he's a white man? It's, this, well, it's <laughs> important because they say, say, if you speak English, we must be getting near civilization. We just keep running into all these people speaking Portuguese, whatever that is. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And they were all speaking some indigenous languages that they have no clue what it is. And so they probably are still not part of the colonial world. So, <laughs> Meanwhile, Tony Stark meets Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch who show up in town and he helps them out. They get to show off their powers a little bit. Captain America and Rick Jones finally make it back. They're confused why all these gawkers are around Avengers Mansion. Captain America jumps over everybody's head, swings up into the mansion. 
is going to confront everybody and then finds that there's a bunch of villains here. There's Quicksilver <laughs> and Scarlet Witch. He's sort of unfazed by this. He doesn't try to attack the villains. You would think that that would be the first thing that would happen in a comic book is, you know, you would have people uh, getting in a fight with each other without asking questions, which is what normally happens. But this issue is just too packed with all various things going on. So that doesn't happen. They just then dump all this on poor Cap's head like a fait accompli. And they're like, uh, yeah, we've all quit. And we hired a bunch of villains to take our place. And you're in charge now. Goodbye. Cap is like, what, what, wait, what? Then it cuts to the news disseminated around the world again, seemingly just in a press release this time. And we see various villains react to it. We see what Kang thinks about this and Executioner and Enchantress and Immortus and Mole Man. They then give another press conference <laughs> in which they're like, okay, here and now we're going to present to you the new Cap's Cookie Quartet, as they will come to be known, Captain America, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, and Hawkeye. Right away, Hawkeye is like strange that Captain America, who seems to possess no noticeable superpower, should be chosen to be our leader. Oh, well. So we've already got him bristling at having Captain America as leader. And then that's it. And then just in case there wasn't enough grand pact in this issue, they say, next issue, the action pack thriller you've been waiting for, the search for the Hulk. So, wow. Wow. <laughs> what on earth? So many ways to simplify the story. Having one press conference instead of two, just having Captain America just show up at home at the beginning of the story instead of having him just miss out on all of this and just get all this dumped on his head when he comes home. Like, did they think that the story wouldn't have gone down this way if Captain America had been there? I don't know why they have him miss out on so much of this story. It is a bizarre issue, but could not be more monumentous for the Marvel Universe. Yes. Generally, I don't like the art in this issue. As I've said, I often don't necessarily like Dick Ayer's inking. I like his penciling that he's doing now, although we're not reading it in um, Sergeant, Sergeant Fury. Fury. And I, I was surprised by how much I really like that, but he's being inked by other people there. We've got inking with the mop airs in certain situations here. Page 15, panel 3, page 17. If you look at the shading on that door that Captain America is coming through, those feathering lines on that door are just, those need to be fixed. That's that's, that's just not how that kind of stuff is supposed to look. Earlier in uh, the Iron Man issue, I was saying, oh, but he's not wearing his chest plate. I was getting that mixed up. It was this issue where that was happening. On page 15, we see that he's just wearing an undershirt under his dress shirt that he's taking off. And there's his whole Iron Man armor just sitting there collapsed, waiting to be put on. (laughs) Okay, this is what I was thinking of. I also love on page 13, panel three, Captain America lounging in the back of the Jeep. Just something about that. His legs crossed at the knees like that. That's an interesting choice. (laughs) He looks both casual and, put it this way, when speaking about gender roles, that's not the most masculine way of sitting in a relaxed position, let me just say, which, you know, is not what I would expect from Captain America in general. One more thing, right when they're about to do the announcement about the new Avengers lineup, Iron Man is saying, well, it's done. I made the announcement. Now it's up to you, says to Captain America. Rick says, he didn't mention my name, Cap. I guess I'll I'll never be a full-fledged Avenger. Well, of course not, Rick. <laughs> I mean, what 
Yes. What? Why is anyone letting him cling to this stupid notion that they're just going to make him an Avenger for some reason? I mean, put the kid out of his misery. You all know that's never going to happen. And you know. I feel like I've been wrong about this past, but I feel like he's finally about to be written out of the book. He's supposed to be in the Hulk. He's going to go over to the Hulk. I don't remember him being a part of the Caps Cookie Quartet era, but maybe I'm wrong. I think that maybe once Kirby comes back on the Hulk, it's, you know, bring, hey, wait, where's his supporting cast here? Let's bring these yeah. guys back. But he might still be doing double duty for a while. So, yeah. And as you say, an important issue, a momentous issue, a monumentous issue, one might say. But I don't like the art. It's, as you said, plotted very clunkily. There's some vaguely racist elements, unfortunately, casually. So, yeah, but still. I, I said that, I mean, I feel like you know, one of the key moments in all of Avengers history is the moment when Hawkeye ties up Jarvis, shoots a bunch of arrows at him, and then they go, good enough for me, you're in the Avengers. And <laughs> it is an absolutely bizarre moment. There is absolutely no reason for them to let him in the Avengers. He has just proven that he is unsuited to be in the Avengers. It is a truly bizarre character moment for the other three of them to let him in at this point. And it will be a turning point for the Avengers from this point on. Hawkeye will be associated with the Avengers perpetually, but it makes so much more sense here than it makes in the MCU or in the <laughs> Ultimate Marvel Universe. It's one thing to just have Hawkeye just show up and say, I'm going to insert myself into the Avengers and insist that you keep me because I can shoot arrows and I think I'd be a great Avenger. And they're like, okay. As opposed to the Ultimates or the MCU where they're like, I, Nick Fury, feel that you guys really need an archer on this team. So I'm going to hire this grim, humorless dude who is the world's greatest archer to be on your team because you really need an archer. That makes no sense that anybody would think the Avengers needed an archer other than the archer himself. This only makes sense if it is just the archer's idea and everybody else just kind of goes along with it. As much as this makes absolutely no sense here, it makes so much more sense than them actually feeling like them deciding they need an archer. Well, and, you know, with you talking about auditioning by kidnapping and um, assaulting their servant, when Hawkeye is being introduced in that same press conference, Iron Man says Hawkeye has successfully passed our rigorous series of qualifications tests. What are those? We didn't see. And has been thoroughly investigated and approved by the Federal Security Agency at our request. I guess they missed that light treason. <laughs> yes. or decided that he's thought better of it who knows and it's like well as long as we keep him away from sexy russian women who are wanting to make him turn to treason then he should be fine yes yes all right well thank you everybody for being here and sticking with us i know that we say this in our wrap-up at the end but i will just say that one thing you can do if you like our show that you might be able to do to uh to help us out that costs you nothing go on to the podcasting platform of your choice leave us at least a star rating rating uh five stars please if you want to leave a review that's always going to help uh we'd be very happy about that hey you two people who <laughs> listen to this podcast i want both of you to go out right now and leave us a star rating interview because we haven't gotten it in a while and it makes us feel happy when we get one the other night my daughter was asking me you know i showed you that t-shirt that i was making for myself and yeah. she was like oh are you selling merch now and i'm like well no we might eventually but no this is just for me she says do you have a patreon I'm like, well, we've thought about it, but I mean, it's like, you know, we only get like, what is it at this point? 600 streams a month or something like that. She's like, oh, that's not bad. And so to have your 16 year old daughter telling you that your web presence 
is, quote, not bad in terms of traffic. That felt like a real win. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, Yeah, thank you very much. We look forward to uh, having you around in a couple weeks. Okay, bye, guys. Take care. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.